Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Thank you for your presence today. We have visitors. We're glad that you're here. Glad that you're with us. Tom Collier taught this class the last two weeks and did things I couldn't do. I'm not smart enough. He's very good on PowerPoint. I'm not. In fact, the PowerPoints you've seen of mine lately, he's done them. I appreciate Tom for covering the maps and the dedication, whatever else he did. But I'm going to continue with mine as I have in the past. And uh, we're going to start in Nehemiah 11. Today we have two more classes after today. And actually, we're not going to start in Nehemiah 11. That's where we're going after we start in Isaiah chapter 6. One of the difficulties we have in understanding the Bible is sometimes we don't get it threaded together right. We see isolated stories, isolated events. We need to marry the events, see how they relate to each other. And sometimes they're hundreds of years apart, but yet they still interrelate. So I want to start in Isaiah chapter 6, which is 200 years prior to Nehemiah 11. A little more than 200 years. But it is very pertinent. You're familiar with Isaiah 6. We're going to talk about it anyway. In the year that King Uzziah died, that's 740 B.C., the events of Nehemiah happened around 445 to 430, 420 B.C. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the doors was shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. This is happening in heaven. Isaiah sees this vision, and he's telling us what is occurring. I hated history when I was in high school and college. I learned to love history when I learned to preach and study the Bible in a diligent way. But I'm going to have some historical facts that are going to be running like this, but some of you will pick up some things about it. You need to see this so you'll understand our context. At the time Isaiah spoke and wrote, Assyria was the world empire. It lasted until 612 B.C. Uzziah died in 740 B.C. when Isaiah saw this vision. 
In 722, Shalmaneser V captured Samaria. That's the northern kingdom. But during the capture, he died. And the king that followed him, Sargon II, claimed victory over Samaria. In 705, Sargon II was killed in a campaign against Tabal, a Turkish province. And in 701, Sennacherib, it's a good name for a kid. Sennacherib, Sargon's son, invaded Syria, Palestine. That is where Jerusalem is. I want you to get this. He looked back and saw what his fathers had done to Samaria. And he said, now, since they did that, I'm going to finish those people off and I'm going to take the southern kingdom. What he didn't know is that God mastered that Samaria thing. He gave it to Sargon too. He intended that it be done. And he intends that Jerusalem be destroyed, but not now. It's going to be later. And this king doesn't know that. He is big enough and strong enough to destroy Jerusalem. And he is, if God is not a factor. But God killed 185,000 of his troops. Now that's getting very serious. And he didn't win the battle. Let's skip down to 626 B.C. Nabopolassar defeated the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire, even though there are parts of it still left, is over. This is a new empire. It's the Babylonian Empire, the Neo-Babylonian Empire. It took about 20 years to get Nineveh gone, 612 B.C., to go to Haran, which the Ninevites, the Assyrians, fled over east to west to Haran. He took that in 609 B.C. Then they went over to Carchemish. And in 605, Nabopolassar was not able to go against Carchemish. But his son, the crown prince, was. You might have heard of this man. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And he fought against that, the Assyrians there and wiped them out. Then he immediately went to Jerusalem and besieged the city. But he found out that his father was dying. He went over to claim the kingship of the Babylonian Empire, came back, besieged Jerusalem, and took several men out, young men, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and took them to Babylon. Interpreting that, that was Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That was their Babylonian names, that is, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But they had godly names over in Jerusalem. 597, he besieges Jerusalem again. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar goes into Jerusalem, tears its walls down, destroys the temple, and burns it. 
And the population, for the most part, that's left goes on a thousand-mile journey by foot into Babylonian captivity. Oh, so bad for God's people. No, no, no. So good for God's people. God devised that. It was in their very best interest. Now remember that Isaiah is looking at these people before that happened. He lives in a time when that had not happened yet. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5, he said, woe is me. He sees all the things happening in this holy place, most holy place, where the Lord is sitting on the throne. He said, woe is me, I'm undone. I suppose if we were in God's physical presence, we'd say, I'm not worthy to be here. I'm not worthy to be alive. I'm undone. I'm covered in sin. That's what he says. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then, verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand the live coal he had taken from the tong- with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth with it, and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sins are purged. Not by the power, of course, of the coal of fire, but by the power of God. That's the method God's used. 154 years before the temple is destroyed, Isaiah has this experience. Verse 8, Isaiah 6, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send who will go for us? We should learn from this that when somebody says that to us, say, what do you want me to do? But he didn't, he didn't do that. He said, I'll go, I'll go. Here am I, send me. Okay, here's your assignment, Isaiah. Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Isaiah, you make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return and be healed. Sounds like God doesn't want them to repent. That's right, he doesn't. The reason? Because for years and generations, they've done it and done it and done it. Out of captivity, into captivity, out of captivity, into captivity again, over and over and over again. God deliver us, and he does, and for a while they serve him and then fall back into idolatry, and he sends his judges. You know the events of the book of Judges. And delivers them. Gideon and Samson and Deborah. You know that. And God said, what I'm doing is not working. What are you going to do, God? Well, I'm not going to work with them to repent. I'm going to let them go their merry way. 
and Isaiah, your assignment is to work with them in in the way they are. Not to bring them back to me. You work with them as they are. And Isaiah said, Lord, how long? And he answered and said, uh, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate. You know what he said in our language as we look back until Jerusalem is totally destroyed. That's how long it's going to be. It's going to be in 586. The only people living there, the only Jews living there, will be those who have escaped or those who are misfits of society. The rest are going to be taken into captivity. The Lord has removed the men far away, and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming. As a terebinth tree or an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. I remind you again that God appointed Adam, uh, Abraham to be the father that took his seed to a nation that kept his seed until it was planted in Mary. He selected that nation not for salvation, but to bring salvation to all of us. Many in that nation were so wicked, it's not even funny. But yet they were God's incubator for the promise he made to Adam. Or really, really the promise he made to Satan in the Garden of Eden. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. God never selected Jacob to be saved and Esau to be damned. He selected Jacob to be his seed carrier. Not Esau, his twin brother. He couldn't use both of them. So Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. I selected Jacob, I rejected Esau. As part of this incubation of my seed. Will my seed be destroyed? No. Lord, I see Nebuchadnezzar marching your men away. Destroying your plan. No, no, no. Modifying a nation who's not respected my plan. Shaping up a nation. Had Isaiah been living, he said, Lord, I think I might have could have converted them if I could have just done what I wanted to do. And God said, no, no. That's not what I wanted. You did what I wanted. I didn't want these people to repent. They've repented enough. I wanted them to go into captivity. Babylonian captivity. So in 536 B.C., Zerubbabel brings a group of people from Babylon back to Jerusalem. It's a new empire. Babylonian empire didn't last long. It was taken over by Cyrus, 539 B.C. Zerubbabel returns with about 50,000 people. And some of God's people are already there. You know, they didn't leave, but 
only a few of them, small part. In about 458 B.C., Ezra brings about 2,000 people over to try to get things started back. Ezra is a priest. He is coming to ready the temple. Zerubbabel had built the temple. They finished the temple in 516 B.C., but it had never really been the temple it should have been. So in 458, Ezra comes back with 2,000 people to help him. And then in 445 B.C., Nehemiah returns with another group. And here we were, all Jews were recognized as brothers. This is the remnant. This is now God's remnant that carries the holy seed. Jesus Christ is in that group. Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1. Now I can read all these names that I'm going to skip over, but I'm not Alexander Scorby. So just forget me trying to do all that because there's no value to it anyway without, in this class. Nehemiah 11.1, now the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring out of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine-tenths were to dwell in other cities. The people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. The walls have been finished. The gates are finished. They're getting ready now to start Judaism all over again. Getting ready to enforce the law of Moses in every way that God says it ought to be. And here they are. Some are going to live in Jerusalem and some are going to live out in the country or in other villages or country villages. Where would you rather live? Well, you might say, I'd like to live in Jerusalem. No, you wouldn't either. Because Jerusalem would be the attack spot of any enemy. And you'd have a hard time farming there. You'd have to go out and farm and better to live out in the country. As for me, I'd just move to Big Cove. That's how I feel about it. But there were means of getting people into Jerusalem. It's important. Verse 3 of 11. These are the heads of the province who dwelt in Jerusalem. But in the cities of Judah, everyone dwelt in his own possessions in their cities. Israelites, priests, Levites, Nethanim, those were the temple slaves, probably non-Jewish people, and descendants of Solomon's servants. Also in Jerusalem dwelt some of the children of Judah and of the children of Benjamin. Jerusalem was sitting in a place where Judah the tribe had possessed it, and Benjamin was very near. So they were the Jerusalem people. So it lists the children of Judah here. And then it down here in verse 7, these were the sons of Benjamin. And don't ask where the other tribes were, because they're not a factor here. They are present, but they're not a factor here. Uh, some of them had come back. But that's beside the point. The priests in verse 10 are listed. The Levites, that's very important. And then verse 12, their brethren who did the work of the house were 822. 
And then he lists them. Verse 15, also the Levites. And he lists them. Notice in verse 16, they had oversight of the business outside the house of God. The Levites were the ones who were taking care of God's business. And from the tribe of Levi, the priests came. Priests came through Aaron, of course. And Aaron was the only one that could beget priests. They were all descendants of Aaron. The Levites in general were not, a, were not priests, only the lineage of Aaron within Levi. And then uh, another began with thanksgiving with prayer. And verse 18, all the Levites in the holy city were 284. Verse 19, moreover, the gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their brethren, who kept the gates were 172. Do you realize some of those gates in Jerusalem required 30 men to open and close them? They were kind of big. The rest of Israel, of the priests and Levites, were all in the cities of Judah, everyone in his own inheritance. But the Nethanim dwelt in Awful. Awful was not a great community. It was a community for servants. Ziha and Geshpa were over the Nethanim. Also the overseer of the Levites at Jerusalem was Uzai, the son of Bani, etc. Verse 24 lists some other people who were taking care of matters. And verse 31 talks about the children of Benjamin. And the end of that chapter, some of the Judeans, some of the Judean divisions of Levites were in Benjamin. I'm still not through with the hard part. Let's go on to 12. Chapter 12. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. Hey, this is back a long time ago. Zerubbabel came in and, hmm, let's see, when was it that he came in to build the city, uh, to build the temple? It was 536 B.C. He came and started the temple, discontinued it, finally finished it, 516 B.C. And then in verse 3, the Levites were, and he names all them. The Levites are very important to the spiritual aspect of this. And then verse 22, he talks about the reign of Darius the Persian. And then in verse 27, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places. So here they are getting ready to dedicate the walls of Jerusalem. Amazing, amazing. I want to pause here with some thoughts that are very, very important. The law of Moses was filled with physical items that were made to draw attention to God. Do you realize before the little lambs were killed each morning that the night before they drank water from a golden bowl, the sacrificial lambs drank water from a golden bowl? Why? Because they were precious. God did many things that we now understand that just looked nice back then. One time, 
because of the sins of the people, he sent serpents to bite them. And then he had them to make a serpent and put it on a pole out in the wilderness. And whoever goes and looks on that serpent will be healed after he's been bitten. And I'm sure they rushed to it and don't hear one single man dying because of the snake bite. Isn't that amazing? I'm telling this story because Second uh, Kings chapter 18 verse 4 talks about the work of Hezekiah many years later. Hezekiah, the great king, the good king, removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars down, cut down the wooden image, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Why would he do that? For in those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Can you believe that? God put a serpent on a pole in the wilderness, or had them to, so that if they looked on that, they'd be delivered from their snake bites. And later, they made an idol out of the thing and burned incense to it. Something else. First Chronicles 23, verse 4. It's talking about the assignments of workers in the temple. Of these 24,000 who were to look after the work of the house of God, 6,000 were officers and judges, 4,000 were gatekeepers, and 4,000 praised the Lord with musical instruments, which I made, said David, for giving praise. You realize God allowed and promoted Instrumental music in worship at the temple? He did. Because of the appeal to the flesh. The temple itself was valued in billions of dollars. The uniform of the high priest was worth more than $10,000. Look at all the finery. If one of our elders or Brother Glenn got up here in a $10,000 suit, we'd probably sit him down. We don't need that. They needed that. They needed that. They needed the golden bowls that the priest used. They needed their fine temple. They needed their instruments of music. Just the way it is. Back to this instrumental things. I've read the New Testament through before. I think you have too. And I can't find these instruments in the New Testament. Somebody said, well, it was obvious that God wanted them because he had them all over the Old Testament. I don't think so. I can't find any animal sacrifices in the New Testament for Christians. Well, it's obvious they want us to offer animal sacrifice because it's all over the Old Testament. Does that make sense? Not at all. I'm going to say something, and I want you to listen very carefully. If you're online, I want you to listen very carefully. God authorizes instrumental music in the New Testament. 
Ephesians 5, 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. If you listen carefully, you heard the authorization of instrumental music, but you also heard the instrument making melody in your hearts to the Lord. He didn't leave music out. He said, I want your voice and I want your instrument, the heart. He named no other instrument. He wants no other instrument. That music in the Old Testament was an appeal to the flesh. The temple was an appeal to the flesh. The serpent was an appeal to the flesh. The uniform of the high priest was an appeal to the flesh. That's what God needed to say. This appeals to the flesh. I'm going to take these shadows and appeal to the spirit of people who are more mature in the New Testament. And that's what God did. You know, Bruce Jacobs, is Bruce in here? There he is back there. He talks about me sometime on Wednesday night. I'm going to talk about him. Bruce is chasing around all over the place trying to find the Ark of the Covenant. Have you noticed that? I got all excited about that. I got all excited about it. I thought he was going to find it. And he finally confessed the other night. I don't know where it is. Well, I'm teasing Bruce. He's doing something on Wednesday night I wouldn't dare to do. If the elders uh, were to ask me to teach Revelation, I'd say, uh, when do you want me to resign from teaching at West Huntsville? (laughs) Delighted that Bruce is doing it. But just what if we could find the Ark of the Covenant? What if we dug into the foundations of the temple of Jerusalem that's now destroyed and here it is in all its golden splendor folks it would be just a box that's all we could bring it out and the world fall down in front of it and worship it but it has no magic it had no magic it was a box in which God worked like the serpent he worked as they looked on the serpent and were healed I don't have any doubt but if we can find if if Bruce ever finds the Ark of the Covenant he's going to be in trouble because it's going to be an instrument of worship and God does not want that not at all one more thought I don't want to pursue this but I just have to say this. There are so many relics in Christian society. It's not even funny. Constantine's mother, Helena, Saint Helena, as she was called, got up a lot of great ideas about this is something here, this is something here. I've seen the dress part of it that Mary Magdalene wore number one it wasn't that but if it was so what 
I saw some wood from the manger Jesus was laid in. Do you believe that? I don't believe it. But somebody put it there behind glass with a sign on it. This is wood from the manger. And people came and worshipped it. I saw men and women kissing the ground where the cross of Christ was supposed to be. God never intended that. That's not what it is at all. But Constantine's mother allegedly took a staircase from Jerusalem to Rome. And it was erected there. Has 28 steps. I've told you about this before, but I'm going to bore you again. It's the sacred steps. The scala sancta, as it's said in Latin. And if you crawl up those steps, one step at a time, and do an Our Father prayer on each step, all of your sins you're going to have to pay for in purgatory are removed. Man, I stood there and watched people going up those steps like you wouldn't believe it. I mean, they took their time, but it was full, full of people. Goes on and on and on. Martin Luther didn't get all the way there. But I have a great admiration for him in so many ways. Martin Luther kept trying to find himself. He was a priest. And he was so excited to go to Jerusalem. He was already questioning many of the doctrines of the existing church. But he went up the holy stairway. And did the Our Father on every step. And this is hard to find because there are some people that don't want it published. But he stood up at the top and here's what he said. Who knows if this is true? No evidence for it. It was declared to be. Not only that, there were replicas set up in various places And charges were made to climb those stairs back in that day. Charles Dickens, after he visited the Scala Sancta in 1845, wrote this. I never in my life saw anything at once so ridiculous and so unpleasant as this sight. Amen, Charles Dickens you'd be better off writing the Christmas carol than to accept this. Well, enough of that. The things of the Old Testament were shadows of things to come. They were not the real thing. They never intended to be. God is not confined to a physical tabernacle or temple. His throne was not the seat of the Ark of the Covenant. His law could not reside inside the Ark of the Covenant. Just wasn't so. But that's how it appeared. That's how God wanted it to appear. So he could keep his people as he wanted them to be 
the incubator so the seed could come. And then when the seed came, all that was passed. And the book of Hebrews is about that. Because the Hebrews writers grieving because these people are going back to that. Coming to Christ and going back to that. And who wouldn't? I, I think most of us would rather look at a $5 billion temple than to look at a country church building that's falling down. But God had rather us to. He wants us to look at him. Nehemiah twelve thirty. Then the priests and Levites purified themselves, purified the people, the gates and the wall. So I thought the lead, I brought the leaders of the people to the wall and appointed two large Thanksgiving choirs. One went to the right hand, the other on the wall toward the refuge gate. After them went Hosha and half the leaders of Judah, Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemai, Jeremiah, and some of the priests with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemai, the son of Mattatai, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zechor, the son of Asaph, and his brothers, Shemai, Azarel, Malala, Gilela, Mai, Nathaniel, Judah, Hanai, Hanani, with musical instruments of David, the man of God, Ezra the scribe went before them. They're going to have an event. It's going to be interesting. That's what God wants. Then it describes all the things that have taken place. Down in verse 40, the Thanksgiving choirs stood before the house of God. The singers sang loudly with Jezreel, the director. Verse 43 tells us that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. They were rejoicing. At the same time, verse 44, some were appointed over the Rooms of the storehouse for the offerings, the first fruits and the tithes together unto into them from the fields of the cities, the portions specified by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who ministered. Both the singers and the gatekeepers kept the charge of their God and the charge of purification according to the command of David and Solomon his son. For in the days of David, this is years back, and Asaph of old, there were chiefs of the singers and songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. They're simply repeating that. Let me say one more thing about instruments in worship, mechanical instruments in worship. They were used at the temple never used in the local churches called synagogues. The singing was all a cappella. At the temple, it was not congregational singing, but it was singing by choirs. 
Different kind of thing. Entertainment, yes. Dedicated to God, yes. Attractive to the masses, yes. But God does not intend that for the New Testament. He loves our music. He loves our parts. He loves our songs. And you do well here at West Huntsville. But he wants every one of us to use an instrument. All of us. Called the heart. H-E-A-R-T. Demands that we do that. We sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. I'm going to stop here. Not because I have nothing else to say. But because I don't want to go into chapter 13. Which will be the last chapter. And it's a heavy chapter. We'll get into Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and uh, Chapter 13 of Nehemiah here next week and then try to summarize the following week. You've been a good class. This is the, uh, this is a mixed up class I presented today, mixed up material. I hope I didn't lose you. If you have questions, something you don't understand, I'll be happy to talk with you. If we have visitors here that want to talk about instrumental music privately, you can. I never will forget working in a Georgia mission field. I was standing back at the door shaking people out. And one lady came and said, may I talk with you? I said, yes, you may. And I stepped aside and she said, I don't want to make you mad, but I think you ought to use an organ here. And we sat down and talked. I commended her for her observation and told her why we didn't. And then at a very small church, sometime before, a lady dropped in and she said, uh, Sir, I, uh, my little girl has an organ, said it's not any good much, yet, but it's better than what you have. I want to donate that to the church. I know you all can't afford it. I said, ma'am, there's a lot we can't afford, but if God wants us to use an organ, we'll get one. I thank you for your offer. But we don't think he wants us to use it. She said, oh. Let's bow. Father, thank you for our blessings. Thank you for words of wisdom from your book. And truths that we uncover and understand and make application. Thank you for our elders. For the way they look at our work. And the way they shepherd us. Bless us. Protect us. Put your canopy over us, keep us from Satan, and dismiss us in your care. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Don't run in the hall. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.